Radio Maria England presents Introduction to the Prayer of the Church Presented by Father Ewan Marley From the Dominicans in Cambridge at Blackfriars In my first talk, I gave a general introduction to the office of the Church, the Divine Office, a form of liturgy, and I stressed that the liturgy is the work of all the people. Now, I'd like to talk about one part of that liturgy, the Office of Readings. As I said, the great psalm, the important psalm, 119th psalm, says, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Six of those times are linked to the times of the day. But the other seventh time is the Office of Readings, which can be said at any time. And in practice, as often said, all sorts of times. Ideally, it would like to be said in the morning, but that's not terribly important. The Office of Readings is basically the largest content of the liturgy of the Church. It consists usually of some psalms, then a reading from the Bible, and then a reading from a spiritual offer, either from the ancient Church or from the Middle Ages, or possibly from the life of a saint or some writings of the saint, and sometimes from the Second Vatican Council. Now, I was talking about the Psalms in the first talk, and I said I'd continue to talk about that. It's a strange thing, it's, it's a remarkable thing that we should say these Psalms when they may be, some of them anyway, as much as 3,000 years old. Certainly well over 2,000 years old since they've been used at the time of Christ. Quite extraordinary that we should still say these Psalms. They are the oldest writings still used regularly. They are ancient writings that people read and study, but not quite like the Psalms. And they've been translated into many languages. The languages, in fact, of the early church were at least three languages, Syriac, Latin and Greek. And in translating, of course, there's always a problem of translating accurately. Not easy to translate. The one thing you can do is read various translations when you have time, but the Office of Readings, being in a book by the church, has already decided what translation to use. Why do we do these psalms and why these ancient psalms? Well, we already said in the first talk it's partly to enter into this idea of a sort of battle, a battle for truth, for justice, the spiritual battle, not not by war, not by the edge of the sword do we fight, but by faith and hope and charity. But the Psalms themselves are very reassuring. They're reassuring because the psalmist admits to being a sinner at times, the persona in which the Psalms are written, admits to being lacking in hope, admits to a sense that perhaps God himself isn't really caring. That's remarkable things. We would be very cautious about saying this for ourselves, but the psalmist says it for us. It admits that the desire for God sometimes seems painful. My body pines for you like a dry, weary land without water. It's not an easy image for prayer, that feeling that you're lacking in water, that you're like the desert, nothing growing, nothing coming from you. It's good that the psalm says it for us because we might be afraid to say it for ourselves. Why, some of the psalms are called penitential psalms in which we admit to our sin. But the psalms aren't all like that. They're also full of hope, full of trust. And they're also prayers which encourage each other to do the prayer to pray. Here's Psalm 66. Cry out with joy to God all the earth, will sing to the glory of his name. O render him glorious praise, say to God how tremendous your deeds. O people bless our God, let the voice of his praise resound of the God who gave life to our souls and kept our feet from stumbling. There's always in the psalm, there's always that twist, that turn where it says, nonetheless. And here it says, for you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You led us, God, into the snare. You laid a heavy burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but then you brought us relief. Well, that's something complaining about God. We 
don't think we should do that. When we pray, we assume that we shouldn't be complaining. Well, the psalmist complains. He says, we have been brought through great trouble, great suffering, and you, you have done it. In that sense, proclaiming God's power. It didn't happen without God's power, God's purpose. However, we could still ask why. It seems that the psalms are asking us to cope with the terror of life by admitting that God is behind it. But then, that's only the beginning. The psalms may seem to be despairing of God, but they always end in hope. There's always a sense that God will win. In that sense, once again I say, the psalms are full of meaning, which is not what it seems to be superficially. It's not despairing. It's rather saying, well, we admit what happened. We know that we have suffered. Sometimes we can see the suffering happen because we were unfaithful. It was our fault. Other times, it doesn't seem like that at all. It seems like we have been faithful. We have been honest. We have been trusting. And we have done what you asked us. But other times we say, well, the Psalms say for us rather, the best thing perhaps is not to ask to understand too much. So we have Psalms which are rather more like Psalms that are more concerned with simply accepting that the world is beyond us. Life is beyond us and so we have to trust in God as best we can. O Lord, my heart is not proud, says one of the Psalms. Another Psalm says, I lie down and sleep comes at once. I wake again for the Lord sustains me. Not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me. There are psalms which are full of hope, and the hope will always win. Hope is greater. Hope is greater than our doubts. And greater because we are, after all, praying not just to God, but in God's presence. And indeed, we're praying words which God has inspired. God has given these, these words, words to pray with, words to use. And one of the psalms is this wonderful phrase about that, how uh, it is God that pulls the prayer out of us. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established us because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That's the eighth psalm, number eight. The power of the psalms then comes from God. That's why Benedict, the great Saint Benedict, whose role has been the great inspiration for so many monastic forms of life, calls the psalms a liturgy, the work of God. It's a bit ambiguous what he means by that, because work of God could mean either work given to you by God, or it could mean work for God, or it could mean the work that God does, God's own work. In fact, it's all of those. It's work. If you go up in the morning and have to do prayer every day, if you have a rule, as the Dominican order to which I belong has a rule, it can seem like work because you have to do it. We also have to make an effort. You have to do it well. We sing the Psalms, so you have to try and sing well. But it's also work God has asked us to do. And more importantly, it is God's work because God is working in us when we do the Psalms. He's doing his own work. And that's because the work is the work of faith. The work of God, he said, is to believe in him. Christ tells us that. God is working in us when we pray the Psalms. And he's doing what he always does. He is furthering creation. The great seven days of creation story tells us that God rested on the Sabbath day. Sabbath means rest. With the coming of Christ, God begins to work again. He's not working in the sense it's an effort. There is no such thing as effort for God. But rather in Christ, it is work because it is human beings who are working. In our prayer, our fidelity, it shapes the world, it shapes creation, it's part of creation. For all creation is not finished, there will be new people born in the world. We will either teach them faith, teach them wisdom, teach them how to live, or fail to. Either way, we bring them into the world, and they too have a choice to join in the prayer that the church calls them to or not. And the office is there so that there will be that shape of prayer for people to continue with, to continue the life that they're given. So the work of God then is what we're called to. As I say, that... The people who are obliged are the people who either take vows, as I have done, to follow, or who are ordained in the church. Also, that's me again. Even if you're not obliged to, even if you're not vowed to say these words, it's good to do them. 
It's good to use the Psalms. And there's a wisdom in doing them with other people in the form of the office. Of course, you can read the Psalms on your own. In fact, if you're going to do the office well, it's as well to read them on your own too, so you can make some effort to study them, understand them. But it would be good to think that more and more people, especially in this time of lockdown, when so many of us have been confined to our houses, have learned to do the, the Psalms together. Ideally, with other people, well, lockdown has made that more difficult, but if you know it, you're doing it at the right time in the morning, if you know that everybody else is doing it in the morning, at least nearby, of course, different time zones makes it a bit more difficult, but you know that you're celebrating the morning together with all other people throughout the world. Maybe not the exact time as such, but locally it will be the morning when they pray, and likewise in the evening. And so doing your shaping your, your life, your work, and shaping your prayer. The Office of Readings then also continues with these long readings. Here I think many people, even religious, would often find that it's easier to do the readings on themselves so they can read them quietly and think about them. They're much longer, after all, than the Psalms. But you can have one person reading, others listening. It's what we do. And it's good to know that you're not the only person listening to these words, reading them. As I said in the first talk, some of the readings are scripture, other readings are wider selection. Sometimes people choose readings outside of the book. Well, it's fine, but then it's best not to ignore the readings in the book. You could do that as well, rather than instead of the readings in the book. And the big readings means that if we follow them, we manage to read quite a lot of the Bible in a year. You will find yourself having read most of it between the Office of Readings or Daily Mass. Not all of it, but quite a lot. And also read it in a certain sequence. Sequence is a bit difficult to measure, though, because... There's the sequence of simply starting at the beginning, working your way through. But that's not quite how the office works. The office is, takes a book, brings you through from beginning to end. It's excerpts, not the whole of it, but the excerpts mean you do at least read something of each book. But then the thing that makes it complicated is we also have the seasons. Advent, Christmas, Lent and Easter. And they often interrupt the readings. In fact, the readings are much less sequential chronologically, they're not in a certain time, they're rather things that are chosen from different parts. One of the important books which is used in Advent Lent is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel, which is strange since it's actually older than the gospels, of course, but uh, this is meaning from the gospels. And Isaiah we apply to many aspects of Christ's life. This is when we come to the heart of things, because we talk about the office of readings, we talk about all the Psalms, it's not just about our life, it is about Christ's life. Then Christ's life is the key to our life. The life and death of Christ is the explanation of our life. Whatever we suffer in life, we understand in terms of the suffering of Christ, which we are sharing in. And Isaiah speaks of those things. Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant more than once. He speaks of degradation and failure. But he also speaks of great gifts and wonders. So Isaiah is very important for Advent and Lent and for the suffering. Then again, as I say, it's not just Lent, it's not just Advent, there's also Christmas tide, which is rather neglected, a bit shorter. And Easter tide. Easter tide is not something we entirely ignore in the church. You know, I mean, we shouldn't ignore it at all, but I think it doesn't grip us the way the Good Holy Week does or Christmas, but then it's because it's over a long period. It's difficult to live in Easter tide, but if you read the readings, you will see readings are relevant to that time, the time of Easter, the time of the resurrection. It gives colour, it gives content, it teaches us a great deal about that meaning. And also, it helps us to see time is not simply chronological time, 
not simply winter, spring, summer, autumn. These are important for ordinary life, but we are looking for something greater. Easter time does, of course, fit in with the late spring. Lent, actually, is simply the old English word for spring. And it's very pleasing to see the change in the world, but then that's only because we live in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, it's quite reversed. Their summer is our winter, their winter is our summer, in terms of weather. The real Easter tide then is something which is spiritual, which is not simply about how the world's changing over the year. We're using the year, but we're not worshipping the year. The real Easter tide is about the resurrection. And that goes on forever because it leads us into eternity, it leads us beyond the self into something greater. So, Psalms, readings, all these ways of talking, and it says something greater than the self. go back to the passage from the Acts of the Apostles, which I referred to in the first talk. It's when Peter and John have been released and they, they pray this psalm, and they see the psalm as being about their life there and then. Why do the Gentiles raise and the people's plot in vain? They say, well, no longer against Israel, against the church. But having prayed the psalms, they then go beyond the psalms and speak, they, they expand what the psalm means. Then by saying, and this is not the psalm, but their own words, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's uh, development from the psalm. The office is what we do, but it's not the whole of the day. And we should learn to go beyond the office. The office sends us out into the world. You can see that, strange enough, in the, the old word for the Eucharist, the Mass. The Mass actually comes from the last words in the Latin Mass, ite misa est, misa, because is the word Mass. Ite misa est is go, there has been ascending. You have been sent. And that's what the Mass does, it sends us out. Curious way of describing the Mass in terms of the end of the Mass. That's why we should properly call it the Eucharist. But let's say something important, that it's not just about being at Mass and then leaving and forgetting what we've learned there or what we've gained or what we received in the Eucharist and receiving Christ. It's about taking that out into the world. And that's part of the purpose of the office too. The office isn't just something that we do to escape the world, but rather it's something we bring into the world. And here we have to be careful because we have to do this in a way which isn't going to be aggressive. I know I said the Psalms have this aggression, but it's an aggression in the heart of ourself where we struggle against our own weakness. If you try to be aggressive to people, we try to force on them faith and hope. It will fail. It goes against the peace of the Holy Spirit. Not that we know who's going to receive. We just have to look for the signs of the Spirit whether to be found. And that's why it's important not to be praying in a way that forces people to listen to you. That's why we have places where we gather, where we say, come to a church, come to a monastery, perhaps come to a house. Worth remembering that this passage from the Acts actually takes place in a house. 
and people know to come there, but they're not forced to. So the Office of Readings, Office of Liturgy, generally should always be done in a way that doesn't force people into it. Then again, not so invisible that nobody knows what's happening. I'll give you another quotation then from Matthew, which is, sorry, not from Matthew, from the Acts chapter 12, another example of prayer. Once again, Peter in prison. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's how it begins. And then the long passage talks about how Peter is released by the angel. And the ends with saying when he came out, when he realizes he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. That's a good example of the fact that the early church met in houses. But they're praying. That's the point about when you object to the apparent aggression of the Psalms. The Psalms are actually a substitute for aggression. They're saying we will pray rather than use violence. We won't storm the prison. We won't demand that Peter is released. We rather will trust in God. And Peter himself will witness by standing up for the truth. Those who don't like that might find that aggression, but it's not aggression. That's simply refusing to be controlled by others. It's saying that the faith comes first. And for that reason, the Psalms, are always Psalms of peace. They're peace because we're saying, well, God's going to win. I think that sums up the whole book of the Psalms, 150 Psalms. God is going to win. God is in power. No matter how often we seem to be defeated by our own foolishness, our own lack of commitment to the truth, no matter how often we seem to be affected by the aggression of others, treated unfairly by the world, God is going to win. And it's why the last three Psalms, 148, 149, 150, are simply psalms of praise. Psalm 148 says, begins, you can find it. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Then goes through all the people who are called to praise, including the kings of the earth, the princes and the rulers. Psalm 149, very simple, very similar rather. It ends by warning that there will be a victory, but it's God's victory. Bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron. That's what God will do to execute on them the judgment written. This is honour for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. That's not saying we do that. saying that's what God will do at the end. God will decide between the good and the evil. But the important thing is to be on the side that's going to win. And the very last psalm, the 150th psalm, well, a short Praise him with trumpet and sound. Praise him with lute and harp. In the last verse, there's a certificate his breath. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We don't want enemies. We don't want to be opposed. But we do know that there will always be opposition. Sometimes those who oppose us, sometimes those who are most aggressive against the church may themselves be converted to faith. We have the great example in St. Paul. But in praying the Psalms, we are praying to beat evil, to conquer ourselves, to be with Christ in, in that conquest, but not by power, not by violence, but by the Spirit of God. And in this way, the office of readings is to make us simply remember that. To say the Psalms summed up best you can, if you can sum up something so complex, so powerful, so concerned with every aspect of humanity, but summed up very simply. God is going to win.
Thank you for joining us for Introduction to the Prayer of the Church, presented by Father Ewan, a Dominican priest at Blackfriars in Cambridge. You can listen to this as a podcast on many podcast providers, and also on our website at radiomariaengland.uk.